welcome our satellites. Those of you who are watching online, thanks for being with us. We are continuing in Exodus in our journey in Exodus. And so if you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 7. We are uh, at this place. We talked last week about um, the question that Pharaoh asked when Of course, God had sent Moses and Aaron, and he said, hey, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to say to Pharaoh, hey, let my people go so that they can go out and they can worship me. And so when they brought that message, Pharaoh had a question, and it's a great question. His question was, who is this Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? He didn't ask, is there a Lord? Is there a God? Because he lived in a really polytheistic culture. Lots of gods. He believed in God. So his question wasn't, um, is there a God? But who is the God? And I think actually we live in a similar culture. I think there are, I know a few people who are straight up atheists. They're like, no, I do not believe in God. You have to convince me, prove it to me with science or something. But I think for most people, there's this sense of some kind of greater being. Some sense that this didn't just happen by mistake. Humans, fingers, toes, brains, minds love, kindness, all these things that are hard to explain as just kind of a mistake or a amazing big bang of nature that created all these intricacies, right? But I think for us, our question is, again, like, who is this God? Is God just an energy? Is God a force? Is he just so mysterious that I can't even get my head around him? Or is he knowable, right? And then I think in the church, even those of us who are Christians have questions about the God that we worship and we believe in. We say we believe in Jesus, but I think we have a question kind of like Pharaoh. Who is this Jesus that I should obey everything? (laughs) See, we're okay with obeying some things. But when it comes to opening the scripture and obeying everything, especially in our culture, right? Because I've had, and I've had people say this to me, surely God understands that things are different now. Uh, that, That our world is different. And the Bible's so old, and that was things then. And they had to, they had to do it that way then, But surely God knows that it's different now. And so I don't think he would expect me to obey this thing. And I'll kind of pick and choose. Well, Pharaoh has asked the question, who is the Lord? (laughs) And then he makes it harder. We talked about this last week. He makes it harder on them, right? And God wants to show up. And show Pharaoh who he is. And that's where we are this week. So let me pray and we'll dive into Exodus chapter 7. Father, would your spirit come and instruct us? Would you bring your word to life for us? 
would we have ears to hear your voice above all other voices, your word above all other words, your way above our way, your glory, God, your majesty, your beauty. Would we see you for who you are in Jesus' name? So in Exodus chapter 7, the Lord is speaking to Moses again in verse 2. He says to Moses and Aaron, you are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. Okay, this is, and, and God is making a distinction. This is Pharaoh's country, and I'm going to take them out to my country. My people are going to be set apart. They're going to be unique But he says in verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and my wonders in Egypt, which is what he's going to do, he will not listen to you. Okay, well, there's a calling. (laughs) Right? You need to go to Pharaoh, um, and you need to tell him to let my people go. And, oh, by the way, he's not going to listen, but I'm still sending you. I still want you to go. We need to say it something about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart because this is this is really disturbing right this is this is hard to understand and and I I really don't know how to explain it all it really falls this is that falls into that debate of God's sovereignty and man's free will right and what you do see if we were to dial deep and I don't want to spend all our time on Pharaoh's heart so we won't but if we were to dial deeper and maybe you saw this as you were studying this past week that in the first five plagues, because what God's going to do is he's going to send some signs and some wonders, and these signs are signs of judgment. And in the first five plagues, uh, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. We have the language of his heart was hardened. Uh, he, He had a hard heart. He hardened his own heart, okay? So there's this idea for the first five plagues that it's something that... Pharaoh is choosing, but then the second five plagues, we hear the language of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now here, where he's speaking, he says, I'm going to harden his heart, because then we also have this God's sovereignty thing, and God is all-knowing, and so God knows that ultimately he's going to end up hardening his hardened heart, that Pharaoh's hardened heart is going to get hardened. I don't know how to explain all that. But I know that God is showing up to answer a question. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I'm okay with a God, but I don't know that I want a God I need to obey. Because a lot of the gods that were around were gods that obeyed the humans. They were there to fulfill the task that the human wanted to have done. And this is, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Goes on in, uh, in, in Exodus verse 4, then it says um, in chapter 7, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with, a, with mighty acts of judgment, and we're going to talk about, There is a judgment upon a land filled with other gods. There is a judgment upon idolatry. Martin Luther says that 
in a sense, all, all sin can be taken back to idolatry. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, verse 5, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. This is what God is wanting to do. God wants to be known. God wants us to know not our fictitious, made-up God. He wants us to know who he is. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and I bring the Israelites out of it. Moses, I'm going to bring the Israelites out. And you'll see this throughout the book of Exodus. Moses is a conduit. Moses is a servant of God's movement, right? God is not a servant of Moses. Moses is a servant of God. And ultimately, it's always going to be God who does the work. You're going to see this again as you read through Exodus. And I, God's going to say, I will do it. I will do it. You go on my behalf, but I will do it. And now we have this prelude starting in verse 8, this kind of prelude to the plagues, if you will. Because basically, what God's going to do here, starting in verse 8, is he's going to kind of give them the big picture in one big thing, and then he's going to bring plague after plague after plague. So verse 8 says the Lord, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, because that's, he's anticipating, he's going to want you to do something big. Show me who your God is. When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff, throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. That's pretty cool. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians um, also did the same. Oh, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts, okay? They threw their staff down and it became a snake by secret art. If you've ever been to the magic castle, right? It's like creep. I mean, this is just, this is magic, right? This is not, this is, it's not like they had, and this is what I think the, the author is being clear. This isn't like they did it out of their power. They did it out of magic, sleight of hand. I don't know. They had a little staff that was really a snake, and then I don't know how they did it. But they, you know, I don't, I go to Magic Castle, and I'm like, whoa, whoa. You know, it's crazy. Magicians can do things. So anyway, so they did that. But this is, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Aaron's snake swallowed their snake and this is the prelude to what's about to happen because this is what God's putting on display you're going to bring you're we're going to you're going to bring out all your gods and they're going to get swallowed by the Lord your gods are going to be impotent before the Lord who is Lord the God who is God the one true God Verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. So this sets the stage. The plagues are going to come. And what are those plagues about? And those plagues are really about all the gods of Egypt. 
the first commandment, which we'll see later in Exodus chapter 19 and the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment is this. Have no other God before me. Have no other God before me. And again, Martin Luther or somebody, some dead theologian said, if you can keep the first command, you can keep all the rest. This is about God demonstrating that he alone is God. This was the mantra of Israel. Our God is one God. He is the only God. And so I was reading and studying, and I came upon this uh, blog post, and I unfortunately I didn't have an author to it, so I can't attribute uh, this to them, but I basically stole everything they said in this blog, so I'm just giving credit where credit is due. Because every commentary I read, as you, you know, Everyone talks about all these gods that the plagues are coming up against. And then this blog said it more succinctly than me standing up here and reading a commentary to you. But it said this, and I thought this was so good. It said, starts this, It is the job of the Holy Spirit to dismantle everything which we trust more than God. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to dismantle everything which we trust more than God. And that's what's about to... Any, it, he says anything less would be unloving if God is as good as the scriptures reveal him to be. The Egyptian plagues attest to this. Because that's what God is basically doing. He is dismantling their gods. He is dismantling what they put their hope in. He is dismantling what they're trusting in. He says the Nile is Egypt's most valuable natural resource. The ancients would have trembled when it turned to blood in the first plague. They worshipped the Nile. The Nile was a god to them. And then he starts to list, and I can't, all all their gods have all these weird names, so I'm just going to make up, I'm going to pronounce it how I think I can, but I'm sure I'm doing this wrong. Hopi, the father of Egypt's gods and the god of the Nile itself, would have been, have been believed to have lost control. That god lost control as soon as the Nile was turned to blood. Each plague systematically defeated another of ancient Egypt's gods. The idols... Lack of control was exposed. They could not handle this. They couldn't overcome it. Their inability to restore life was unveiled. The gods Heka, Geb, Kapfi would have been shamed by the plagues involving insects because they had gods who controlled insects, who controlled animals, who controlled all those things. Apis, Memphis, Hathor were defeated by the plague of livestock. They had gods who had like heads of cows that represented the god of the livestock. So if you wanted your livestock to live, if you had a problem with your cow, you prayed to that god, right? The other god, there was a god of health that proved powerless when Egypt, suddenly the the plague of the boils came upon them, right? Right? Nut, that's a horrible name for a god. (laughs) Nut and Isis 
were revealed as impotent through the plagues of hail and locust because they were gods of the wind and gods of the sky and they should and, and the locusts were brought in by the wind right and they should have been able to stop that and then this the plague of darkness was a fierce warning because in that god the lord yahweh had overpowered ra and ra was arguably the top of egypt's gods ra was the god of the sun and a central figure in ancient Egypt, Egyptian worship. Even then, though, when the darkness came, Pharaoh could not concede because there was another god going on, the god of pride. The final plague, this author says, is an extension of the previous, a darker darkness each of Egypt's firstborn would have been dedicated to Ra. And Pharaoh's son was considered an incarnation of Ra himself. You see, that's, Pharaoh was considered a god. And the son of Pharaoh would be a god in line. And he was the physical manifestation to them of the sun god. So the death of the firstborn was a brutal and a crushing end to the empty gods they had placed their trust in. Who are your gods? What are your gods? What are my gods? What do I put my trust in? What do I put my hope in? The author goes on, idolatry always destroys our greatest joys. Our commitment to our idols cuts away at the people and the things which matter most in our lives. Because here's one of the things. Often those things that matter most in our life that are really good things that were given to us, a spouse, a child, a friend, family, uh, co-workers, good things given to us when we make them ultimate things, we destroy them. No spouse can stand up under your worship. They were never made to be worshipped. And you're saying, well, I don't worship them. I just want them to come through for me. That's your worship. Because here's the thing. Everyone will disappoint us. And that's okay to be sad by that. That's okay to feel hurt by that. But to be destroyed by that tells me when I get destroyed by my disappointment, when I'm destroyed by somebody not coming through for me. I have put them in a place they never belonged. And they're not going to stand up under it anyway. And typically, when, when, when we start to worship and we put a child in a place, they have to come through for us. They have to perform for us. They have to be a certain thing. All we end up doing is pushing them further from us. They can't stand up to that, right? Idolatry always destroys our greatest joy. Our commitment to our idols cuts away at the people and things which matter most in our lives. Each idol delivers a silhouette of the real experience. And their falsehood can be as difficult for us to see now as it was for Egypt to see then. And again, oftentimes, and I love how Keller always says this, Keller says that 
you know, often, especially in our Western world, our idols are good things that we've made ultimate things. And so the invitation is not the invitation of, for instance, like Buddhism, Buddhist philosophy, which would say to detach. Because if I am too attached, I get hurt, I get disappointed, I get sad, right? So I will detach and I need nothing, I want nothing. Well, the interesting thing of the Christian gospel is, no, you should want more, need more, love more, get yourself in there and get messy and enjoy and all those things. But ultimately, your value, your worth, your enjoyment all rests upon your God. And then you can enjoy people and you can enjoy your work and you can enjoy your finances. You can enjoy homes and stuff in their proper place, right? author says this this is the this is actually the quote i was going to just use this and then i thought well i'll just steal everything because it was really good um (laughs) says this in comparison to egypt's gods modern idols have names which sound normal and i can pronounce all of them approval pleasure comfort power control but they act the same We draw our identity from them. We arrange our lives around them. And at our time of greatest need, they abandon us. What are my gods? Who or what am I looking to to tell me I matter? To tell me I'm valuable? To give me approval? To provide pleasure? to provide comfort, to provide power, where I feel in control. What are my gods? We all have them, y'all. We all have them. And this is the gracious act of God to dismantle them, to show them for what they really are. They're false gods. They're not going to come through. And even if they are good things, and again, lots of them are good things, they need to be enjoyed and lived in their proper place. Tim Keller said, the only way we can avoid the true God is to fabricate a false God that's controllable. And I think that's the thing, is that we look to what we feel like we can control, what makes us feel like we have control. And so again, some of us are destroying relationships because our really, although it's not conscious, but our aim at the end of the day is to feel in control. And so if yelling makes you feel in control, awesome, but you're not. (laughs) If sarcasm gives you a sense of control, if belittling If choosing to live always as the victim, it's always their fault, always them, if that gives you some kind of sense of control, well, good on lonely you, right? You see, that's what we're doing. We will fabricate a God who seems to work for us until he doesn't. We have gods who are more like personal assistants than the all-powerful, almighty God creator of the universe. 
We have gods who are more like a candy dispenser. And I'll pick what I want from them and what I don't want from them. I want peanut M&Ms. I want M&Ms. I don't want baby Ruth. We have gods where we put God into a box and we say, I want this part of God. I want that part of God, but I don't want that part of God. So I'm going to stick that part over here because that doesn't work with me. And this is the God of the universe who is bringing judgment on that kind of thought in Exodus. And for many, and I think in our culture, we want a God, we've created a God who's merely a mystical energy, right? And then I just have to call on him with my good energy, my good vibes, my good thoughts. You know, you've just, I'm just sending out good thoughts and good vibes and good energy, right? And that's an interesting thing, uh, this mystical energy God, this kind of mystical power God. I was sitting, remember I was down near Venice Beach and uh, I was at a coffee shop and you know how at coffee shops you're basically in the same conversation with the people next to you. So I couldn't, I couldn't not hear. So there's two women who had obviously just met uh, and they were going to, they were going to looking, they'd both moved here from different parts of the country, not from California. And they were looking for a place to live. They had their Craigslist thing out and they were looking for um, a place and, um, and they were talking about what they wanted, how many bathrooms, this, that, near, how close to the beach, all those things. And then one of the women just pulled out this, this crystal thing and she started <laughs> waving it. And the other woman went, oh. And, and she goes, I just find this works. I, I, I think we just I, I, it's just, I just want to put some good energy over the, the list that they were looking at and all that kind of thing. But that's what you kind of had. How do you communicate with your mystical energy god but with mystical energy so she was doing that god wants to dismantle all of that god sent plagues he sent signs when pharaoh asked actually the real a really good question who is the lord that i should obey him and i was thinking about the questions that were raised uh, when Jesus came. Because Jesus did signs too, right? Book of John, the Gospel of John records seven signs that Jesus performed that they call explicitly signs. But it also says there that he performed other signs that were not recorded in that book. And I was thinking of that time when Jesus was out with his disciples and they were out on a boat. And a huge storm came up, right? And they were afraid. And Jesus is sleeping. I love this story. Because, like, Jesus is like, what's the big deal? Storms. I make those. You know, they're all like, ah! And uh, so he realizes, okay, these guys aren't as adept at riding out storms as I am. So he, in just a word, right, he just says, quiet. And this huge storm just stops. And the guys in that boat asked a question, kind of like, um, kind of like Pharaoh's, but a little bit different. They said, "Who is this man that even the waves and the wind obey him? Who is this man worthy of our obedience? Who is this Jesus?" Right? It's a good question. 
Jesus's followers would also join in the ministry of putting God on display and signs and wonders. And there's this moment in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John come across a, a lame man and they heal him. And the religious leaders who are far more concerned about their them themselves don't like that Peter and John have healed this lame guy, mainly because when they healed him, it says many then began to believe in Jesus. And then Peter and John go on and they continue to preach, and it says they're preaching the resurrection. And this was disruptive to the religious leaders of the time. And so they throw him into jail. The next day they bring them out in front of these rulers and elders and teachers of the law. And it says this, that they had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them. By what power, is this a mystical energy? By what power or what name did you do this? Do you have a God? The name was the, the, was the essence. Whose authority has given you this to heal? Then Peter, and I love this, filled with the Holy Spirit, because that's the gift when you come to faith in Jesus, you're given God himself to live in you. God himself to empower you. God himself to be the authority that guides you. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Who is this Lord that I should obey him? Well, the New Testament, and we always read the Bible in its completeness. It is not just one book or Old Testament, then New Testament. We read the whole thing. And so we know that the answer to the question that Pharaoh is asking, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He has a name. His name is Jesus. It is by the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. You didn't see him. You were waiting for the Messiah. You were anticipating the Messiah, but you rejected him. But he is our cornerstone. He holds us together. He's the one in control. He's the one who gives us value. He's the one who tells us we matter. And then verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There is no other God. Have no other God before me. There is no other God who can save you from these plagues. There is no other God who can take control like our God. There is no other God who has power over a storm. There is no other God who has power over illness, disease, and even death. Because our God 
raises the dead to life. Our God heals. Our God shows up mysteriously and in ways we could never imagine. He answers our prayers sometimes and in the way we, we didn't want it answered. But for his glory, his purposes, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He is not your personal assistant. He is not your candy dispenser. He is not your mystical energy. He is God. And Lord, we pray that our understanding of you would deepen. Our love for you would increase. Our submission and surrender to you would be full and complete, holding nothing back, giving you all of ourselves for all that you want to do through us, in us, and for us. Oh, would we know you to be God, our God, Lord of the universe, worthy of our obedience and our life. We pray it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.